0: So this evening, I'm going to talk about what we're doing here, and I'm very happy to be in here. I haven't been in here since this morning, and the day that I uh, give the talk is a day when I usually, I can't help myself, I write the talk that day, and I always think I'll do it ahead of time, but so much of the inspiration comes from meeting with you and being here in the energetic field of the practice of the retreat that I wind up doing it that day, so I miss you. I haven't been practicing in here with you, although with you in spirit, but it's very good to be in here with you now. And, you know, the feeling of this retreat is already, I mean, you may be suffering, it's the first day, and of course I will address that, but the feeling is one of happiness, too. There's a, there's a sweetness already in the field of presence here. It reminds me of the Thanksgiving retreat. There's some of that in that retreat, too, just a certain happiness, because it's Thanksgiving, I guess. So um, I want to begin this talk with um, just sharing with you a New Yorker cartoon. I really enjoy finding New Yorker cartoons that express certain points of Dharma. And in this one, I mean, I'll show it to you, but you won't be able to see too much. I'll just describe it first. Uh, There's a man sitting at his desk. He's got his hands folded on the blotter um, on his desk. And he's one of those generic New Yorker uh, men. He's wearing a striped tie and a suit. And he's got uh, glasses, a mustache. He's balding. And there's a man sitting in front of him looking somewhat diminished, although we can't see his face. His body posture is um, expressing perhaps a bit of puzzlement. And uh, he's got his briefcase next to his chair. And the man who's got his hands folded, you know, like this on his desk blotter, um, the protagonist, he's looking up at a portrait on the wall. And the portrait is of a man who looks exactly like him, As a matter of fact, it's a portrait of him. And he's looking up at the portrait and he says, It helps me stay focused on what matters most. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that there's, you know, as we practice metta for ourselves at the beginning, there is sometimes that sense of is this selfish? Am I just kind of focusing on what matters most? Because after all, it's moi. Um, But we're not doing it in that spirit, you know, we're doing it in a very different spirit, which I'm going to be talking about tonight, uh, which is the spirit of spiritual friendship of what Martin Luther King called the beloved community. And it's uh, a genuine kind of friendship that is very different from, well, for example, a Facebook friendship, I don't know what it means um, exactly. Uh, I don't know what it means to have... I mean, I have a colleague who has 947 friends on Facebook, um, so I don't know what friendship means in that context, but I know that we're doing something different here and I'm grateful for that. When we were meeting this afternoon one person who gave me permission to tell this story began describing her metta practice and she's practiced for a while this is not her first metta retreat and she began to say she said she was describing what she was saying to herself during the day and she said you can't it's still you can't concentrate You can't do this right. This is such a waste of time. I'm a bad meditator. I mean, these, she was sharing her difficulties, of course, with the practice. And I thought, these are the (laughs) anti-meta-phrases. And how much of the time are you practicing the meta-phrases? And how much of the time do we practice the anti-meta-phrases? Saying things like this to ourselves, (laughs) they creep in, don't they? and the beautiful part was that she was also saying in spite of this i practice i keep going even though you know each person can say this here i am it's just me in here inside of all of this that's going on including that list of anti-meta judgments but still practicing and that ability to keep practicing, to just say, well, I practice. I say the phrases, I keep going, I pick them up again and again and again, is um, the process of purification, what we call the path of purification, the Vasudhi maga. I think this is a very beautiful phrase, don't you, the path? of purification, but what does it mean in terms of what we're doing here? What does it actually mean? Um, You know, we all have inside of us uh, sources of, well, uh, we could call it anti-meta, but that which is not of love. And when we sit down to grow our capacity for love, which is what we're doing when we practice, when we come and do a metta retreat, when we sit down to grow our capacity for love, we inevitably encounter everything that is unloving and all of our problems loving. And so there's a sense of, um, I mean, you'll notice this. You can see this clearly in just one day of retreat that you can feel fine. And then something happens, or something arises in your consciousness that makes things not quite right. That's at the least. Maybe you get sleepy, or your mind is just distracted and wandering, or you have some association to something unpleasant, or the um, anti-meta phrases, the negative phrases take over, or uh, maybe some traumatic, frightening memories appear, or maybe you just are restless and want to jump out of your skin. Um, Maybe you're just, you know, running a lot of fantasies, and, um, or maybe just the pain of seeing the truth of all the conflicted jumble of stuff that's unclear in you and us, and um, it's not in our nature, to have to suffer with these things. And yet, when we sit down to do this, sometimes it seems like that's most of what comes up. So it can be like being depressed on a beautiful day. You know, you can feel even worse about feeling bad Because metta is supposed to make us feel happy and good. And all day we are offering these blessings and well wishes. May I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I have ease of well-being. And the contrast between the aspirations and the reality um, can actually make you want to even leave the retreat. You won't, of course. I'm just talking about the wish to escape this. And yet, you practice, you practice, you continue, and you sit down right in the midst of these um, experiences of not feeling so great, and whatever comes up, you keep with the phrases, you see it, but you uh, keep with the phrases, you don't have to do anything else, and it can seem um, it's deceptively simple but that really is all you have to do. Another person was describing uh, having a roommate. This is sometimes um, a challenge on retreat and this person was sharing that the roommate hasn't done anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with the roommate or with their relationship. It can just be in completely inexplicable, invisible ways, irritating. The other person's very presence can be irritating. Just the way they breathe when they're asleep. It's not their fault. I'm not even talking about snoring. Um, Just their presence. It can be irritating. And, uh, And so she was describing practicing with these feelings of irritation and annoyance, and her practice was not juicy or blissful or loving at all. Very, you know, that when it's sort of dry, a little mechanical, kind of, somebody was saying this morning, flat. Um, but again, she's practicing, she's just keeping going with it. And she described how at one point during the day, the roommate came into the room. And in spite of herself, she just broke out in this great big happy smile to see this annoying roommate. So this is how, even imperceptibly, even without realizing it, um, the practice can work in us. And um, this process of seeing our just the gunk, the stuff, that comes up when we sit down with the intention to be loving. Uh, this process of purification—it's um, almost as though we're giving. It's a safe place. We're giving our whole system permission, like the, the like a spring unwinding. You know, to um, to throw off whatever gets in the way, and like these you know, we have beaches where I live and sometimes there's tar on the beaches. It's like big globs of tar or something that just appear, emerge um, like that in our consciousness. And the trick is to keep going. Just keep going. Maybe not step right in them and get them all over yourself, but to see them and keep going. And it's a mysterious thing. I remember my first intensive metta retreat was at IMS and my teachers were Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein. And Joseph, I was already a teacher in a different tradition, and Joseph said to me, um, I think this was around, I don't know, 1997 or something, and Joseph said to me, you know, this is a little bit like magic. You have to just trust me. You have to just do it. Um, I have a reputation for not necessarily doing what he said. So he said, you have to just do it and trust me. And there is something magic that happens. It's as though, whether we're feeling it or not, through the willingness to persevere and keep picking up these phrases, uh, we metify our hindrances and obstacles, everything that gets in the way, these um, globs of, uh, you know, whatever your gunky stuff is, as though we just basically metify them to death. We keep at it, we keep going, and this process of, um, well, I think I call it metification of all of this. I mean, this is the purification. When I hear purification, all I hear really is pure. The fication part is um, the not-so-pretty part that I'm describing. And But as we do this, we really free this effortless, um, as Sylvia was saying, it really does develop a life of its own. It does it can become our default setting. An effortless, radiant joy can really become our default setting. And this is the aspect of uh, wisdom or devotion that is expressed through the repetition in the practice. This repetition, the wonderful um, old British pediatrician and psychoanalyst, D. W. Winnicott, coined the phrase, the good enough mother. But we would say the good enough parent. And he talked about um, the ordinary devotion of parents. If you've been one, you know about this. But you certainly have all had one. And whatever their qualities, um, you know, we all have parenting crimes on our uh, consciousness, consciences, I will speak as a parent and say that. But we did do, there is a kind of ordinary devotion of diaper after diaper after diaper. Just the simplicity, feeding after feeding after feeding. I remember once my daughter was about 10 months old and she was really hungry and it wasn't quite warm or ready and she was just freaking out. And I looked at her, I just thought, I was, I was very young, but I just thought, like, what's up with you? I've fed you every other time. For 10 months I have fed you many times a day. Like, why wouldn't I feed you this time? You know, but to internalize That trust, to internalize that trust, that, um, well, this is our practice, this ordinary devotion. We're doing it over and over, and there is a part of ourselves that doesn't trust it yet. Doesn't trust it yet. Here's the Dharma talk, here's the words, but it's on the level of, you know, belief. It doesn't really, it's not embodied, doesn't trust it yet. And yet, uh, Sylvia will talk about the metta-sutta, but the phrase that I love from the metta-sutta is, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. Diaper after diaper, feeding after feeding, phrase after phrase, breath by breath, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness, the ordinary devotion of of our sila of our integrity of our great intention to be um, a loving presence for ourselves and for others in this life one of my Zen teachers defined uh, meditation as it was a um, Suzuki Roshi And he was talking about Zen meditation called Zazen. And he defined it as making room for another. And I love this definition because what is our meditation usually so full of? It's like the man gazing upon his self-portrait, right? It's so full of us. And these phrases give us a way to make room for something else attaching, by pouring our attention, by pouring our effort and energy into these phrases, and it sometimes seems so trivial and so strange uh, to be doing that, but by pouring our attention there, um, we're making room for something else to happen, something new. and. Uh, And the difficulties that arise, um, I want to talk a little bit about the difficulties that arise. We can look at part of the progression of this practice. Some of you who are newer to the practice were asking, you know, do we just sort of do this for ourselves all week? But no, most of you know, and those of you who are new need to know, this is a step-by-step graduated practice of including more and more uh, dimensions of relationship and beings within inside and outside um, in the field of our goodwill. And so we begin with ourselves because it's considered that that's the easiest place to start. Sometimes it isn't the easiest place to start, and then you can start with somebody who's helped you in this life, for whom you spontaneously have feelings of gratitude and and goodwill. Um, It's fine to start that way, but one who is skilled in goodness learns to, in a sense, um, begin to separate ourselves from hatred, begin to separate ourselves from the things that that get in the way of being present in our meditation, in our life. We sometimes name these the five hindrances and to me these are the difficult aspects of our own nature that we're looking at Uh, the practice goes first we offer to ourselves then we offer to loved ones and we try to pick people that we don't consider just extensions of ourselves like our children or i mean it's fine to pick your children but um Mm -hmm to pick dear friends, and the practice starts to get really interesting when we open up to the so-called neutral people, which often translates into a lot of people we couldn't care less about. I mean, they don't bother us, but we don't really care about them at all. And so to start to begin to include those people in our practice is, starts to get interesting and much more challenging. It's like, you know, when you're on the treadmill and in the incline, you start to make it steeper. Um, And then we include the difficult people, the people who actually annoy us. Maybe we don't start with the ones who abused us the most in this life, but there are plenty of people who um, have hurt us in some way. And so we can also look at this practice from a contemplative point of view here in the retreat, just working with the hindrances as parts of our own being, the many being who inhabit our heart and who actually create the self that is, um, Donald is going to talk more about this, but the self that gets in the way of making room for another, another that might be brighter, happier, more joyful. Um, So can we offer some Um, kindness, can we have a freely warm and empathic attitude toward the parts of ourselves that we don't like so much, that tend to be discontented or complaining, that tend to um, be easily irritated and aversive and hold grudges and resentments uh, that get instead of you know joyfully connecting with the present moment, get really restless and want to be anywhere but here? Um, can we understand that these parts of ourselves that might be very anxious, that are prone to getting really, Sylvia uses the word startled. Um, it's a very good word because I used to experience those kinds of anxious thoughts I used to call them swoopers. I don't have them anymore. See, this is the power of the practice. I used to call them swoopers because I would be sitting there meditating, you know, pretty happy. I mean, okay, anyway. And then one would swoop down, you know, and there'd be this moment of just, oh my gosh, you know. And it could be something as trivial as I forgot to call so-and-so as, you know, something a lot worse. And... Um, So can we meet our swoopers, and um, can we understand that really, all the parts of us want to be happy. They're like difficult children asking for attention, and um, one of my uh, very beloved therapy clients taught me an expression. he, He taught me in Gaelic, but I can't remember it in Gaelic, but he was Irish, and he said that um, they have a saying, better strife than loneliness. <laughs> so we do this internally too, right? It's better to have a disaster fantasy, plan a fight with somebody, um, than to just be all alone. Um, so can we meet these parts of ourselves that are, they want to be happy, but they're looking for happiness in the wrong places, um, but they would prefer to have our negative attention than no attention at all. Uh, can we begin to include and meet these things too with a little bit of humor and understanding? One of the things that helps with children is that we see, you know, we we have a sense of um, of journey. You know, we understand. We can comfort a toddler, we, we uh, understand that they're going to grow up and be able to handle more and more things on their own. And um, My grandson recently asked his mom, well actually I can remember her asking me. <laughs> she said she was little, you know, probably, I don't know, maybe five, something like that. And she said, can I still live with you when I'm 40? And I said, sure, sure. Why did I say that? Her son asked her something similar. Yeah, they said, we can say that so freely because we know that they are not going to want to live with us <laughs> when they're 40. And she knows her son isn't really going to want to marry her, which he currently does because he's five. Um, and so she can say yes someday, maybe. Because she's pretty confident that when he reaches a marriageable age, she will choose somebody else. Um, So, you know, we have a, a, we just have an intuitive view of the journey, of the overarch, of where this is all headed. And so it allows us, in our good moments at least, when we're not too tired um, or stressed, it allows us to be reasonably kind and patient um, with our children because we know where they're headed. Uh, They're headed, they're gonna grow up. This is inevitable. They will grow up. I remember when my daughter would not get out of a diaper, my mother-in-law said to me, I promise you she will not be wearing a diaper when she gets married. (laughs) These things help, and they give us a sense of where we're headed. And similarly, With this practice, you know we can have, we can afford to be tolerant and kind toward our hindrances. They will grow up, which in their case means being becoming metified to death. They won't bother us anymore. I'm not saying anymore ever. They may come up again, but once you've had the experience of seeing how they dissolve and have less and less, less power over you. They just don't pack the same wallop afterwards, again. So, we're um, offering meta to all these parts of ourselves. We're understanding that our path to happiness isn't about trying to get away from these painful experiences of ourself, of our being. Um, you know, if we could just get away from that person who snores or burps or farts or whatever. These are metaphors, of course. Um, whatever they're doing in the hall, then we'll have perfect meditations. Um, this is a very uh, naive and, and innocent but deluded uh, misunderstanding. Um, this isn't how the practice works. Uh, it works by letting go. And the phrases are a way of helping us let go. They are almost like a practice of mantra. Mantra means mind protection. And so each moment that we're saying a phrase, even if we're not cradling it in the utmost tenderness, even if we're just, you know, saying it, it's like that moment of, you know, we're off the streets not doing anything else the anti-meta isn't operating each moment that we're saying a phrase we're actually letting go of something that stands in the way of our loving and so it's um, one of the most amazing tools that we could have it's simple it's rote and it's amazing it actually helps us let go And sometimes we don't even want to, you know, but it still will help us in spite of ourselves. I was thinking today, I think because of talking with Sylvia, who spends a lot of time in France, and I lived in France for years... At one time of my growing up and um, a couple years ago, a very famous uh, French philosopher, clinician, Jacques Derrida, a deconstructionist, died and he said something that I think is very applicable to our practice. He said, uh, anytime we construct anything, we're leaving out something. So anytime we construct an image of ourselves as a loving being, the one who is going to leave this retreat and become the giver goddess of happiness to self and others in the world and you know so forth, we're leaving out something. And often we're leaving out the stuff I was just talking about, uh, the difficulties that arise that we've all experienced in our practice. And then he also said, we maintain ourselves through acts of exclusion. And this is an interesting statement because whatever is excluded that we really try to divorce ourselves from um, begins to have power over us. So when we are inclining our heart toward the goodness, when we are... um, Asnyapanikatera, that wonderful monk that Sylvia quoted, was it just last night? seems like a long time ago. It was just last night. He said, the Buddha said, he picked it up. He said, to that which we give attention, to that does the mind or heart incline. So by inclining our hearts and minds toward that which is of love, wishing ourselves safety and wellness and ease and um, and love. By doing that um, we are not trying to deny the things that we are choosing to exclude. We're not just pasting a smiley face on experience. And pretending. And I think maybe that may be the difference between, somebody asked a question about what is the difference between affirmations and these phrases. Affirmations are powerful, but they are in a way a demand. We say, I am happy, I am safe, I am. And you know what, maybe we're not in that moment. So there's a misattunement But the metaphrase is, may I, it's an aspiration, it's it's asking. And there's something so powerful about the act of asking. I don't know about you, but I forget to ask. We forget to ask sometimes for help. And without getting into who we would be asking, it doesn't matter. The very act of asking brings us, it opens us to receive. So the asking, may I, may I, may I be, may I be, is also expressing a kind of warm-hearted willingness to receive something, to receive something uh, with and from each other. Another person was talking about, because I was asking people, you know, this is a big retreat, how is it to be practicing with a hundred people here and in the dining hall, and and one person was saying, you know, you can feel it in the dining hall, just in the way we walk around each other, we're kind of careful of each other, and the silence, (coughs) excuse me, the silence and the not looking at each other, It's not that dreaded silence at the family dinner table when somebody was angry or, um, you know, that icy, cold, I'm not talking to you kind of silence. You can feel the caring in the silence in the dining room. You can feel it. I'm just uh, at a choice point here, so reflecting on it. One of the things that our willingness to meet our experiences of suffering or being in the grip of one of these hindrances. Um, one of the consequences of our own willingness to be with these experiences with at least less aversion, even if it's not, you know, tenderness or kindness yet, at least with lessening aversion, so the heart isn't dwelling in so much of that, uh, is that we begin to automatically have a sense of everybody is going through this, we're really in this together and the vulnerability of being a human being. And just by loving each other, we're vulnerable to losing each other. By loving ourselves, we might be sorrier to lose ourselves. And um, Dogen, as Zen master from the 13th century, said a very beautiful thing, and I'm paraphrasing because I couldn't find the exact quote in my notes and I didn't want to go online. One of the blessings of... Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> he said, you know, when you're really certain of things and you're really pretty, you know, on top of it feeling, you're really far away from the Dharma. But when you feel vulnerable, when you feel, oh, you know, this feeling of... Um, incomplete, like, I'm so far from being able to embody this metta. He said, then you are filled with the Dharma. It's that sense of making room for another. You know, that our cup, that an empty cup isn't a bad thing. It's a good news thing here. Um, And how to keep our hearts open in the face of suffering, so much suffering in the world. This is a huge question, and this is one that um, we're, the whole week is an answer to that question. I teach this to uh, professional caregivers who work with critically ill and dying children in the pediatric ICU, in the neonatal ICU, different parts of the children's hospitals, and even experienced One charge nurse said, if I know a child is going to die, I don't want to be on the next shift. I'll try to get out of that shift. That was so honest that she said that. And this is a professional, experienced person. It's hard to be with so much suffering. I remember um, to try and have a sense of their work, I visited the hospital, and I went around, I think it was around 11 or 12 at night, because it, it wouldn't have worked for me to go during the busy daytime. And it was around midnight, and there was a mom standing over the bassinet of a six-month little girl who was, six-month-old baby, who was dying. And she was reading, oh, this always makes me cry, she was reading prayers to her um, in Spanish. And the little girl was just looking up at her and smiling. It was her mom talking to her and she was smiling. And, um, you know, this, uh, this openness and vulnerability and, uh, we can really believe it, our capacity to love. No matter what is happening to you, no matter what has happened to you in your life, uh, this is an undamaged capacity, uh, I think I should say no matter how damaged, it's still there. That would be more accurate. No matter what's happened, it's, it's still there. And well-cared-for children. We see this. We see this. My grandson wrote, She gives me so many kisses on the cheek. She takes me places like Disneyland. She lets me sleep in her bed in the night. Just ordinary devotion. When I was new to Los Angeles where I've been teaching for about seven years now exactly, I volunteered at the prison because a lot of sad things had happened before I came to Los Angeles and I was really, um, it was a hard time in my life. So I volunteered two days a week. I worked at um, Central Juvenile Hall teaching meditation, it was a really new experience for me to meet kids who had committed murder, and really violent kids, and um, really lots of violent crimes. And to see that they were still kids, in spite of this, they were still kids. And, uh, and we practiced metta together, and we would make a circle, and we would open our circle for somebody. We'd send special metta if somebody had a court date, or it was um, their sentencing time, or they had received a tough sentence like, life, when you're 18, Um, or some bad news from outside, from the family, from the hood. And we would um, make a circle and offer metta. And sometimes I would ask them to offer metta to me. And you could see that it would make them feel good. With the boys, you know, they would really get into it and do it the girls would just just start to collapse and sob and turn into a sort of meta-puddle. But it was as healing for them, as for me, as it was for them. That's what I meant to say. And suffusing, you know, steeping ourselves in these well-wishes, in these blessings, in these prayers, is also a way of strengthening the heart so that we can face some of the more harrowing things that happen in the world, and, and maybe even have happened to you in your life, uh, without reenacting the trauma. Because we have st- set this intention to uh, meet the experience with a different kind of, um, we're, we're, it's the intention to become skilled in goodness, in tenderness, in kindness we can meet these harrowing experiences without being afraid of, you know, just um, making more trauma or reenactment for ourselves. So, um, this is from Bob Dylan. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say it. (laughs) I'm going to spare you that. Uh, Everything is broken. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds, ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking, everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words never meant to be spoken, everything is broken seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hits the ground. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath, feel like you're choking, everything is broken. Every time you leave and go off someplace, things fall to pieces in my face. Broken hands on broken ploughs, broken treaties, broken vows, broken pipes, broken tools, people bending broken rules, hound dog howling, bullfrog croaking. Everything is broken. Uh, my Zen teacher Chino Roshi. He used to translate the end of the heart sutra where it says Gate Gate Paragate Parasam Gate Bodhiswaha. It's a beautiful mantra. It means gone, gone, gone beyond. He used to translate it falling It reminds me, you know, broken, falling apart, falling apart, altogether falling apart. You can't be helped. So, this is our vulnerability as human beings, isn't it? So we go from maybe a little restlessness or irritation to the deepest suffering. And you know what? This works. I think sometimes these practices of the Dharma are called uh, the wish-fulfilling jewel because at whatever level you need them and ask for them, they can help you. They can help relieve your stress and headaches. They can help you bear unbearable feelings. Um, this is from Aung San Suu Kyi. She's talking about the capacity to draw strengths from hardships. And she's saying it's really from hardship rather than from ease that we gather strength and wisdom. And she's saying um, this. She says, We live, we make mistakes, we suffer, and we learn. That is the cycle of life we have to follow. I have no words of wisdom to offer, no words of infallible advice that will enable you to avoid the pitfalls of human existence. I would wish you a happy journey, one that is free from trouble and defeat. But such fortune is not insured to all of us. So for those of you who will have to face the usual, and at sometimes more than usual, quota of disappointment and sorrow, I would like you to remember on the darkest nights that there are those who do not know you, but who understand your trouble, and who care, because they themselves have known the absence of a comforting light. And at those times when your life is full of light, I would like you to think of the ones who are deprived of the basic requirements of a meaningful existence. Those who can't even dare to hope that salvation is around the corner. So it's time to close this talk and... I want to close with, um, I always close my meta teaching with this last poem from Raymond Carver, who's actually a short story writer. And you don't have to leave because you're coughing. It's fine to stay and cough. It's just the suffering. It re- reminds us of the suffering side of life uh, if we get too metafied and blissed out. Um, so it's okay. She left anyway. But um, Raymond Carver knew he was dying, and he had 10 years of sobriety and happy marriage to Tess Gallagher, and he felt... Um, well, he, he wrote this at the end. It's called Late Fragment. And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I love that, even so. It's like we all have that in spite of everything, right? Did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? He asks himself, and then he answers himself, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. Was a beautiful exchange he had with himself and his hindrances and did you get what you wanted from this life even so I did and what did you want to call myself beloved to feel myself beloved on the earth so that's our day of meta for Ourselves thank you everybody for listening and let's just sit for a moment It's such a blessing to be alive and to have the chance to open ourselves to the love that's here for us within and around us. This is a time for walking meditation. Um, may you enjoy the metta of clouds and moon. and. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.